continue praying that together. Oh Lord, we need you to speak to us. It's not just that we want you to, we do want you to, but we need you to. We are dependent on your word for our nourishment, for our satisfaction, for our hope. We need you to speak to us, oh God. And so we come, gather in this place, we open our Bibles, we listen. Lord, all of that is nothing if you don't cause our faith to rise, cause our eyes to see. And so, Lord, would you do that? We pray for you to do that. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. Speak, O Lord, your servants are listening. Would you use your word to break the hardness of our heart, to inflame the coolness of our hearts? Would you use your word to uproot those things in us that are displeasing to you? Would you help us to see, to see you, to see your glory, to see who you are, and to see how you've called us to live. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what a blessing your word is to us, your people. We open it with this joyful anticipation that you, oh great God, would speak to us, would change us, would mold us, would shape us. Sanctify us by the truth, oh Lord. Your word is truth. We pray you do that in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Beloved, it is so good to see you this morning. God is so kind to give us the local church. Sunday after Sunday, hearing you sing, hearing you pray, just you being here encourages me to endure, to press on and not lose heart. And so thank you for being the church. Let's continue looking to Jesus by turning to the book of Romans chapter 3. So in our passage-by-passage study of this, the greatest letter ever written, we are now entering the third chapter. By the way, I love seeing so many of you using the Roman Scripture journals. Uh, This is just a neat way to take notes and to study uh, hard together. Taking notes, thinking hard about the words and phrases in Scripture is one of the ways we can just sort of break through the surface and dig deep into the gold of God's Word. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. This is what Paul says. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. 
This is the inerrant word of our God. May he write its meaning on our hearts. Well, as I studied this passage over the past couple of weeks, I resonated with something that the Apostle Peter said in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. This is what the Apostle Peter said. He said, Our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. It's a really amazing statement by the Apostle Peter. Not only does it show that Peter had Paul's letters, at least some of them, that he was reading, that he also would read to the churches he was involved in, but it shows that Peter saw Paul as inspired, that his letters were part of the Scriptures. And he says as he reads the Scriptures that are the letters of Paul, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. I like to imagine that Peter was probably reading Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8 when he wrote those words. There are some things in this passage that are hard to understand. In fact, most things in this passage are hard to understand. In fact, I read multiple excellent commentaries on this passage, and there were multiple world-class scholars who led the commentary on this section with something like this. This is the most difficult passage to understand in Romans. Multiple commentaries. Just start with that. This is the most difficult passage in the book of Romans. And as Peter said, I want to avoid the ignorance and instability of twisting these words to my own destruction. And so we need God's help this morning as we seek to correctly interpret and apply this portion of God's authoritative Word. And we need a double dose of God's help this morning because not only is this a complicated passage, but we lost an hour of sleep last night. Who in the world planned this passage on this Sunday? Feel free to gently nudge anyone around you who's trying to make up that hour uh, during this time. Sunday afternoon naps are precious gifts of God for days like today. Now, remember a few weeks ago I told you that Romans chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 3, verse 20, is an intentional parenthesis in Paul's argument where he's preparing us to hear about the righteousness of God revealed in the Gospels. In chapter 1, verse 17, the righteousness of God is revealed in the Gospel. That's where Paul is moving. But he takes this intentional parentheses from 118 to 320 to sort of clear away some of the underbrush so that we can hear about the righteousness of God. He's showing us our need for the gospel by showing us the wrath of God that is revealed against our unrighteousness. Well, I think chapter 3 verses 1 through 8 is a parentheses in the middle of this parentheses. Paul is going to pick back up with our unrighteousness by declaring that none is righteous, no, not one. Starting in chapter 3, verse 9, Jews and Gentiles are both under sin. He's going to lay that down once again. But before he continues preparing us to hear of the righteousness of God in the gospel of Jesus, he needs to answer some objections against what he's been saying. 
Now remember, Paul has been teaching these truths for several decades by the time he writes Romans. And so like any good teacher, Paul anticipates the objections. And he takes a brief moment to answer these objections so as to remove any stumbling blocks to moving forward in what he's going to say about the righteousness of God manifested in the gospel. All of these arguments that he gives here and the ones he gives later in Romans as well are leveraged to help us hear the gospel, the good news of King Jesus. And so based on what Paul has been saying and arguing for in chapter 2, he has a discussion with some imaginary objectors here. Paul is defending his gospel and the character of God against these particular objections. I see four main objections that Paul briefly answers, and I mean very briefly answers, in this passage. This is what makes it so hard, is because Paul doesn't give us a whole lot here, but he is going to pick up on these themes later in Romans, and so this is just setting the stage for those. And so let's just walk through these four objections Look at the questions that are being asked of Paul. See how he answers them. And then we'll conclude today with some application of what we see in this passage. So here are the questions the objectors are are asking. Number one, does being Jewish have any advantage? Does being Jewish have any advantage at all? So let's let's refresh ourselves on how Paul ended chapter 2 to see that this is the question that he's asking in chapter 3, verse 1. Remember in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul basically said that being a true Jew is not about nationality or circumcision. But rather, he said, a true Jew is one who is a Jew inwardly. That is, one who has been circumcised of the heart by the Spirit. Paul's point is to say that nationality or outward signs are powerless to save. No one is part of the family of God by birth or by works. That's his point. And so you can see how the most logical objection would be that Paul is saying being a physical Jew or being circumcised has no value at all. Right? If a Gentile can be made a true Jew, though he's not circumcised, then what's the advantage of being a Jew? And so this is a serious objection to what Paul is saying about the universal need for God's righteousness. So look at how Paul raises this objection and then answers it in verse 2. He asks, then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? His answer, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And so Paul says, much in every way. Much in every way means Paul believed there is great advantage in being part of the chosen nation of God and obeying God's rules. Paul doesn't think what he said in chapter 2 means that there is no value in being Jewish or being circumcised. And so what is the advantage? What is the value? Well, Paul says, notice, to begin with. That's how the ESV translates it, at least, to begin with. Now, I think that's a pretty weak translation of what Paul's actually saying here. I think it could be better translated, first of all, or most importantly, or 
primarily. Because notice that Paul doesn't list multiple advantages here. He only lists one advantage. Now, he's going to list many advantages when he picks this argument back up in chapter 9. So that's going to be a while for us. You can read ahead there and see that he lists four, five, six different advantages to being Jewish. But here, notice, he only lists one thing. And so Paul's not saying, let me begin with this, but I'm going to move on to something else. He's not saying, this is first in my list. No, Paul's saying, this is the most important advantage. There are many advantages, but this is the primary advantage. This is the same word Jesus used when Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added. Jesus wasn't saying, begin with the kingdom of God and then move on to other things. No, Jesus was saying, primary, most importantly, seek the kingdom of God. Well, that's what Paul is saying here. Most important advantage is what? What is, what is the most important advantage and value of being Jewish? Well, he says the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Being Jewish and being circumcised cannot save anyone from God's righteous judgment. He has made that clear. However, the Jews have a significant advantage in being entrusted with the Word of God. Now, the word oracle just simply refers to something that's declared or something that's stated. So, Paul, I think, is referring to the whole of the Old Testament, the whole of the Word of God, from which he is about to quote extensively from in the middle of chapter 3. The Jews have been entrusted with the Word of God. They've been entrusted with a significant advantage over every other nation. This is something the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Philistines did not have. The Jews had God's Word. And thus they had God's promises. This is the greatest of advantages, according to Paul. There's not a greater imaginable blessing than to have the Word of God entrusted to you. This would be similar to the advantage today of growing up in a Christian home and attending a healthy church, being a member of a Bible-saturated congregation. Right? Those things do not contribute one bit to our salvation. No one has ever been saved because they were born into the right family, because their family was Christian. No one's ever been saved because they grew up in a preacher's or a missionary's home. And so what's the value of attending church and being a member of a healthy church if it doesn't contribute to your salvation? What's the advantage? Well, Paul would say, much in every way. And the chief advantage is being able to be surrounded by the truth of God as it's read and prayed and proclaimed to the people of God. God's Word is where God reveals Himself and His promises and His desires for His people. And so hearing God's Word proclaimed and declared and exalted in, being able to read and study God's Word is more valuable than gold. This is why it is so devastating, friends, when churches move away from the simple exposition of the Scripture to telling stories and having motivational speeches, that strips God's people of our greatest advantage, our greatest blessing. As Paul will say later in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. The way God speaks and sparks faith 
in a dead heart. The way God fans the flame in a cold heart is through the fire of His holy Word. We'll highlight this blessing again in just a moment. But think about what Paul is saying here. Paul argues being part of the people of God and being marked out as such carries tremendous advantage. What is that advantage? It connects us with the truth of God. The truth of God that God uses to set us free. What's the advantage? Paul says, much in every way. The Jews have been entrusted with the oracle of God. Second objection or question that the objectors are asking is this. Does Jewish unfaithfulness mean that God is unfaithful to His promises? Does Jewish unfaithfulness mean God is unfaithful to His promises? Look at the objection Paul answers in verses 3 and 4. Paul asks, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul's answer, by no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, and he quotes from Psalm 51. So to try to capture this objection, let me try to ask a question that might make this more contemporary for us. What if everyone that our church baptized in, let's say, a three or four year period walked away from the faith? What would that mean? Would that mean that we shouldn't baptize anyone anymore? Like, does multiple people turning away from the faith mean that we shouldn't obey Jesus in baptizing those who give a credible profession of faith? Well, the obvious answer to that question is no. Just because some walk away doesn't mean that we abandon an ordinance God has given us altogether. I mean, after all, God has given it as a means of grace to His people. We should obey Him in spite of what the results are. And so this is a similar objection, I think, that Paul is answering here. He imagined that people would ask, if the Jews aren't really Jews because of their unbelief, then what does that mean for God and His promises? God is the one who gave the covenant to His people, and so what if all of His chosen people turn away from Him? Does that mean God is unfaithful? Now, this objection may seem a little silly to us, but this was a legitimate question in the first century. What does the unfaithfulness of God's people mean for God's faithfulness? Is God faithless because His people are faithless? Is God's faithfulness to His promises, to His people nullified because of their unfaithfulness? Notice how Paul answers. He answers really in the most emphatic way possible in verse 4. By no means. This is a very strong negative. It's as if he's saying, God forbid. Even if everyone is a liar, God is true. Even if everyone is unfaithful, God is ever and always faithful. He keeps his covenant. He keeps his promises. Now, as support for this point, notice Paul quotes from Psalm 51. Now, Psalm 51, we read some of it earlier in the service. It's David's prayer of confession after his sin of committing adultery with Bathsheba and murdering her husband. David is confronted with his sin. He repents and he cries to God for mercy. And in the process of repentance, David acknowledges 
the rightness of God's justice against him. He says, against you, you only have I sinned, and you are right to judge me. You are right to pour out your wrath on me. See, David knows that God is faithful in judgment, even if David has been totally unfaithful. No one can question the faithfulness of God in spite of his people's rebellion and sinfulness. God is true, God is right, God is just, even if everyone else in all the world is a liar. One of the ways I think we can apply this answer to this objection that Paul gives here is that we should never judge the character and glory of God based on our experiences and how we see the world around us. You see, our tendency, I think, is to evaluate God based on what we can see. Like, we look around us and we see all this rampant wickedness, but we must understand that God isn't judged based on our limited understanding. His faithfulness isn't seen by our physical eyes. God is true always. God is faithful always, no matter what our feeble understanding of our circumstances may be. We have to submit our experience of the world and our perception of reality to what God has revealed about himself in his word. Amen. He is faithful, period. I think that's what Paul's saying. In spite of all the unfaithfulness of his people, God remains faithful. In spite of everyone else being a liar, God is true. That's the second objection. Notice the third objection, the third question that they're asking is this. Is God's wrath really righteous? Is God really righteous to pour out His wrath on us? So these next two objections get to the really difficult uh, part of, uh, of nailing down what exactly Paul is saying. But let's, let's give it our best shot here because all Scripture is profitable for equipping us. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Paul asks, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, Paul says. For then how could God judge the world? So to me, it looks like Paul is granting the truth of the first question in verse 5. Our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. God is shown to be righteous in contrast to our unrighteousness. It seems like Paul's granting that truth. Everyone is unrighteous, and because of our unrighteousness, we can see the righteousness of God. Or another way to look at it would be to say, if everyone was righteous, there would be nothing special about God. But there is none righteous, not even one. And so God is seen to be righteous in our unrighteousness. And so Paul's acknowledging the truth of that argument, but then he emphatically denies the conclusion that his objectors are coming to based on that truth, that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. So the objector's saying something like this, since God is seen as righteous through our unrighteousness, then that makes him unrighteous to pour out his wrath. Now, the parentheses at the end of verse 5, I think is Paul's way of saying, I speak in a human way. I think this is Paul's way of showing his frustration with this objection. 
This is a man-centered way of thinking about God, and Paul will have none of it. God is the judge of the world. He has promised He will judge the world, and His judgments are always just and righteous, and Paul will not allow his opponents to use word games to try to absolve themselves of the guilt of their sin and the just wrath of God against them. Paul is saying, whatever God says is right. Whatever God ordains is right. Whenever God judges, He is righteous in His judgments. And I think Paul is astonished here by the low view of God that's exhibited in this objection. It's as if Paul is saying, have you people lost your mind? Why are you abandoning the truth of the wrath of God? Do you think that God is just going to overlook your sin and give you a free pass? You see, this happens all the time in our world today. People live their entire lives. They never think about God's righteous wrath against their sin. They sin and sin and sin and sin and sin and nothing happens. And so what's the assumption? God must not be just. God must not going to punish me for my sin. He must just be overlooking all of my sin. But friends, God will not show His patience forever. He will judge the whole world with His righteous wrath. That's what Paul has been arguing since chapter 1, verse 18, right? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so Paul says, yes, God's wrath is totally just and right. They're asking, is God's wrath really righteous? If, if our unrighteousness shows God's righteousness, then, then is His wrath against us really righteous? And Paul says, you're speaking in a human way. You're speaking in a man-centered way. Don't you understand that God will judge the whole world? The fourth and final objection looks like this. The people are asking, to make God look good, should we just give ourselves over to evil? To make God look good, should we just give ourselves over to evil? Look at verses 7 and 8. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. So this is the argument that says, if God is glorified, if He's seen as just and holy by our sin, then shouldn't we just sin to make God look good? If God is seen through our sinfulness, then shouldn't we be the people who just give ourselves over to all manner of rampant wickedness? In his commentary on this passage, R.C. Sproul imagines Judas using this argument on the day of judgment to show just how ludicrous this would be. Imagine Judas Iscariot saying, why am I being judged? The best thing that ever happened to the world was the crucifixion of Jesus. I mean, if it weren't for me betraying Jesus, no one would have atonement. It was all because of me. All of this salvation, all of this grace, I did all of this to fulfill the Scripture. Why am I being condemned as a sinner? This is the foolishness of someone saying, since God is seen as just and holy by our sin, then we should just live it up and enjoy all the sin we can and imagine that God is glorified by it and will thank us for it, for making Him look so good. Paul doesn't even respond to this objection here. You see that? He just says he's being slanderously charged with teaching this. And their condemnation 
is just. Now, Paul is going to answer this objection, but he's going to do so in Romans chapter 6. Paul will address this objection in more detail when he says things like this. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. God forbid. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, the true people of God would never think this way. When we are united to Christ, we died with Jesus in his death, and our greatest desire is to honor him by our obedience and by our submission to his authority. And since Paul doesn't see fit to elaborate on this objection here, I'm just going to leave it there as well. God is always righteous in his wrath, and he is always just in his judgment. And just because he's seen as glorious in justifying the ungodly does not mean we should pursue our sin. Just because he's seen as righteous in justifying the ungodly doesn't mean we pursue ungodliness. Well, let me close with some application by pointing out a few ways we can respond to this passage. How should we, as believers in Jesus, respond to the truths and, and Paul's answer to these objections in this passage? Number one, recognize what a blessing it is to have God's word. Amen. Recognize just how much of advantage it is that we have been trusted with the word of God. You see, when we count our blessings, we usually take for granted that we have the word of God. Like we have God's word on our shelves, in our cars, on our phones, in our AirPods. We got various translations, colors, sizes of the Bible. We have so much access to God's word that I think we often forget what a tremendous blessing it is to possess the truth of God. And friends, when we recognize what a tremendous blessing this is, this should, the response should be to eagerly consume God's truth day and night. We should be eager to read it, study it, memorize it, teach it, and share it as widely as possible. In fact, children and youth, let me just address you for a moment. You have the privilege, the advantage, the blessing of growing up in a church that loves the Bible. We read the Word, pray the Word, sing the Word, preach the Word. Your Sunday school teachers, other leaders focus on the scripture. They love to teach the Bible to you. And friends, not everyone gets that advantage. Not everyone has been blessed with such a tremendous blessing. But with great privilege comes great responsibility. In fact, I think the Bible teaches that stricter judgment will come to those who have God's blessings but turn away from them to other things. God's strictest judgment is reserved for those who have his blessings and don't recognize them and don't see them and turn away from them to other things. And so, based on this passage, recognize what a blessing it is. Take advantage of this huge advantage by consuming God's word as more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. For all of us, here's the question today. Sort of a sleepy March morning, March the 12th, nothing special about this day. Just sort of come and go, get on about our business. But here, here's where God's word comes in contact with our life this morning. 
What will change in your life as a result of reading this passage about the great advantage of being entrusted with the Word of God? What will change in your life, in my life, as a result of encountering the truth of God that we have been given such a great advantage, such a great privilege, that we have God's Word, God's promises, God's truth? Recognize what a great blessing this is. Secondly, never doubt God's faithfulness. And I mean never, ever doubt that God is faithful. In spite of human unfaithfulness, God remains faithful. So if I had to nail down a burden of this passage, which is one of the first things I try to do in preparing for a sermon, is just what is this passage saying? How does everything in this passage support some main truth? And I think it's this. That God is faithful. In fact, I almost organized all the points around this by saying things like this. He is faithful in giving His Word to His people. He is faithful even if His people are unfaithful. He is faithful even as He pours out His wrath. That's what Paul's saying in this passage. That God is faithful in, in spite of His people's unfaithfulness. He's saying He's strong and sturdy as a refuge that we can rest in. He will never fail you because He is always faithful. Let God be true even though everyone else in all the world is a liar. Friends, whatever you're facing today and whatever you will face tomorrow, never ever doubt God's faithfulness. Don't try to interpret your surroundings as if God is somehow being unfaithful to you because that would never be true. Settle this in your mind. God is always faithful no matter what comes your way. You can take this truth to the bank that God is Always faithful. Never doubt it. Third, and finally, this passage is calling us to flee from the wrath of God. Flee from the righteous wrath of God. So one way we could explain salvation that Paul is going to explain salvation is that we need to be saved from the wrath of God against our sin. What are we saved from in salvation? We're saved from God, from His wrath. What do we save to? We're saved to God, to His glory, to His eternal honor. But friends, far too many people, I think, try to explain away God's wrath as if it were some outdated idea that was for the people of the past. We in our humanness rationalize that surely God isn't really angry at our sins. Surely God wouldn't send someone to hell just for one sin, right? Seems so out of step with our culture today. But friends, the Bible is clear that we will all face the wrath of the righteous God who made us. And we will either face His wrath on our own, or we will face His wrath clothed in the perfect righteousness of the Savior. Amen. Oh gosh, I can't wait. This, these last four or five weeks, I just... I can't wait to get to the end of chapter 3 where Paul says that God put forward His Son as a propitiation. Sometime in the next couple of weeks before we get to Romans chapter 3, verse 25, get to know what a propitiation means. It's a wrath-averting sacrifice, a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. Paul is going to spend from chapter 1, verse 18, to chapter 3, verse 20, saying, the wrath of God is revealed against your unrighteousness. And then he's going to say, but, but God has provided the wrath-absorbing sacrifice 
God has provided what you couldn't provide, a, a sacrifice of atonement that would be everything you need to face my righteous wrath. And so here's my encouragement this morning to anyone who could hear my voice. Don't spend your days trying to explain away the wrath of God, undermining the wrath of God, questioning the wrath of God, but rather flee to the only refuge available. Flee to Jesus Christ right now. He is the perfect sacrifice of atonement for sinners like you and me. Let's pray together. Oh God, give us the strength to flee. Give us the desire to flee from everything that displeases you in our hearts, from our sin, from our depravity, and help us to see Christ as worthy of, our, of being our refuge. Help us to see him as a strong and sturdy refuge from your wrath. Oh God, I pray you would help us to see what a blessing it is to have your word. That we wouldn't take it for granted that we have your truth in our own language, that we can study and read and memorize and share your truth. Oh God, help us to recognize that. And God, I pray that we would never, ever doubt your faithfulness. That no matter what losses come our way today and tomorrow and in the years to come, God, I pray we would always lean on your faithfulness. And God, I pray that no one in this room would face your wrath alone, but that everyone would flee to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oh God, prepare us to embrace this gospel, to hear this gospel, to live out this gospel. We thank you for it. And we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Where's your hope found? I pray it's found in Christ alone. Let's stand and sing in Christ alone.